is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we talk about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, from history to business, and everything in between. And we love hearing your stories. Send them to ouramericannetwork.org, and we'll take a few of them, take many of them if possible, and turn them into stories right here on the show and put them up on the satellite so you can hear them too. Also, to hear all of our material and our best each week, our five best stories each week, Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org and sign up for our free newsletter. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And send the link to friends. What we're doing here is special. I think you know it. Share it with friends. And anywhere you can, talk up what we're doing. We appreciate it. And so, too, does your station. And now it's time for the McClellan Files, where we go deep inside the life of Bob McClellan. Some of you don't know, but whose life and whose voice you're certain to be captivated by. ...in their dealings with... Oh, yeah, my glory, that's a beautiful love story. While watching a movie with my wife in the family room one evening, we were interrupted by our 16-year-old son, Tommy, who walked in and sat down with us. Politely, he said he had something important he wanted to discuss with us. As I turned off the TV, I quickly imagined all the possibilities of something terrible, disastrous, or difficult that could force a 16-year-old boy to sit down to talk with his parents about anything important. My wife, with her eyes wide open, sat silently while we all got settled in to hear what he had to say. I could not remember his approaching us like this before, and my expectations, coupled with my imagination, made me feel very uncomfortable. He began to tell us about a friend whose cousin attended the New Mexico Military Institute in Roswell, New Mexico for high school. That cousin is now a captain in the Green Berets and is teaching math at West Point. Tommy was very impressed by that and said he wanted to go there for the remaining two years of high school. He talked about the academic standing of the school, the numerous activities that were available, and the challenges he felt the school would present him. As he spoke, I was still unprepared for the ending of his story. Calmly and ever so smoothly, he discussed his desire to attend such a school and pursue a college education that no doubt had a military career as its ultimate destination. His mother countered with a gentle return to reason when she said, You're going to a fine private high school here in the Bay Area. Why would you want to leave all of your friends? More straightforward questions came from me like, are you unhappy? What are you on, drugs? He said he was prepared to leave his friends as he would make new ones at the school. And though it was a military school, he was not enlisting and would still be a high school student. He returned to talking about the courses and activities offered by the school and its academic reputation. He thought the discipline and focus would help him be more successful. It was obvious he had done his homework and it was evidence of how seriously he took this idea of leaving home, traveling and living at the school, and taking on a rigorous academic and physical regimen at 16 years of age. Young though he may be, he had reached a fork in the road in his life that his mother and myself didn't see. We asked, why would he want to be going to a military institute that sat out in the middle of the New Mexican desert? It was their reputation, he said. In their one-year cadet prep program, 97% go on to one of the military academies. Out of a total of 900 students, 90 went on to the military academies. He thought that by doing well at NMI, 
He could pick any college he wanted to attend, and after graduation from college, become an officer. I began to suspect that he was bored living under the shady trees amidst a wealthy suburb south of San Francisco. A bedroom community offers little excitement, punching a time clock, working at a retail store, or hanging around with your friends, playing with your phone while living at home is a lot less adventurous and exciting than traveling around the different places, living within a community where 30% of the student body is international, 100% are former military, and meeting the many challenges that the military presents. We reminded him that home and community are important for his development. They are nourishing, sustaining, and necessary foundations for his life. But. Like bread, they can often become stale. It wasn't love or nourishment that was missing. He just needed more room to grow. Finally, I just had to get to the point. I asked him, what's this all about? I said, I got no problem with the military, but why not do ROTC in college? If you want to go in the military, why do you need to go down there and do this? It was a moment of silence and a calm, self-assured demeanor. He looked at me. And without any doubt or hesitancy in his voice, he said, Dad, I am not going to go to Stanford Business School, and I am not going to go to Harvard, and I am not going to spend the rest of my life working in an office. I want to be a captain in the Green Berets. I was speechless. There was nothing more I could say. And at that point, I was done. I was sold. He said he wanted to be an officer in the Green Berets, work in special operations, and be fluent in Arabic. He wanted to be a leader and not a follower. He had heard from his friend's cousin that these men don't need to find themselves. They do that every time they're standing in a doorway, getting ready to jump out of a plane. I asked him, are you prepared to jump out of a perfectly good airplane over Nigeria? His response was a simple yes. I could see the look in his eyes were infused with his youthful imagination and romanticism. But I knew he meant it. I understood how he felt, and though I thought it was a little early, I reminded myself that after all, it's just high school. He's not going off to war. I knew too that regardless of how far down this path he goes, he will benefit from making this decision and will learn a lot about himself in the process. This was his decision. He looked into his own incipient life and realized that he needed to find a different path to take him to a different place. He didn't know where that place was located, but his imagination convinced him that it existed. He just had to find it. And when we come back, more of this terrific story from Bob McClellan. By the way, go to the McClellan Files at OurAmericanNetwork.org and you can hear all that Bob does what a terrific storyteller. And by the way, if you have a storyteller in your town that you know can just, well, hop out stories, send his or her information to us at OurAmericanNetwork.org because we know there are great storytellers all over this great country. More of the McClellan Files after these messages. This 
is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we pick up where we last left off with the McClellan Files, a young man, a boy, having a dream in his head, a vision in his head of leading a team overseas in the Green Beret and making that next important move to go to military school. Let's pick up where we last left off. As a parent, I learned eventually I could not really direct my children's lives anymore. Oh yeah, I could influence or coerce them, but I was no longer the director. In this conversation with him that night, I realized I'd become a spectator. I always believed as a father that the best I could do was to prepare my children to set their direction in life and be ready to live with the success or failure of their choices. Now, I would have to honor that belief. Consequences exist in the world of adults while children are protected from them. Families, like ours, create barriers and boundaries and walls trying to keep out the grimmer and grimier aspects of society. But to do that, we risk becoming imprisoned inside the walls, holding on to the illusion that we are safe and in control. We sent our children to private schools, put alarm systems in our house, and were careful about who we invited into our home. But still, we know that no one is safe. We pick their friends, pick their school, and where they can go, but at some point, we can no longer be there to make their decisions or supervise every activity, place, or person that comes into their life. The point has to come where either I release him or he just jerks his hand out of mine. Troubles like drugs, teen suicides, mental illness, or just being lost living at home with mom and dad have permeated through the porous walls of his school. He sees some of his peers already making these dangers a lifestyle, and it is one of the reasons why he wants to leave. These dangers may be hidden among the many tomorrows of his future. It was becoming apparent to me that Tommy is not just running to someplace, but running away from someplace. I thought my wife and I would make all of his decisions, but at some point I know we won't be there to help him. To manage these serious difficulties, he needs many attributes to get him through, and resourcefulness sits at the top of that list. Resourcefulness is an attribute that is part of the military bedrock. Planning for the unexpected, adapting to fluid situations, and working with limited resources are integral parts of military training. Our natural instinct at home is to nurture our children. It is our duty as parents, but being nurturing is not preparing them to be self-sufficient and independent. Eventually, the breast runs dry and is incapable of providing nourishment for a man. The appetite becomes too large when your son is six feet tall and shaven. Without realizing it, Tommy's decision is one that will help him develop the ability to take care of himself. Wow, what a concept. Choosing for oneself which side of the wall is right for you is a decision we all have to make. Tommy chose the risk of being on the outside rather than being inside in the safety of the center. His confidence impressed me as evidence of both his desire for independence and self-reliance. Regardless of the outcome, this is his choice. If he gets down there and doesn't like taking seven classes a day and training in 100 degree heat in the desert, then that's just too bad as far as I'm concerned. I am sure this experience will teach him to be very selective about what he chooses to do in the future. He will certainly learn his limitations down there as well as his capabilities. 
Video games and drugs and alcohol hold no allure or excitement for him. At NMI, he is not allowed to even have a smartphone and internet access is controlled by the school. He leaves all those attachments and appendages here at home. There is no use for them at the school. They will write letters instead and carry a flip phone. The school seems to have a policy that I embrace. Less is more. I told him that the door only swings one way here and other than leave or come home on vacations, don't come back until you finish. He said, no problem, Dad. I told all my children when they turn 18, three doors will appear in their life. The door to college, the door to the military, and the front door. And they're gonna go out of one of those three doors, for sure. And Tommy, he's the last to go. Afterwards, my wife discussed the conversation with me, and she asked what I thought was driving his decision. My answer to her question was that he was bored. A high school campus full of kids that all grew up together becomes a very small world. Church for teenagers, every Sunday, boy, that gets routine real fast. Faith eventually fades away. Teachers telling him all day what he's to believe doesn't challenge him to think for himself. He doesn't learn to solve real problems but rather digital or paper ones. In the novel All Quiet on the Western Front, Paul Bomber exclaims to his former teacher after returning home on leave from the front lines in World War I, you never taught us anything really useful, like how to light a match in the wind or make a fire out of wet wood. Sometimes it is the practical and not the theoretical education that is important. He wants to take classes to fly a plane, experience scuba diving and rappel out of a helicopter, run an obstacle course and learn about teamwork from teachers who spent many years in the military. He's not interested in being a digital cartoon characterization action figure. He wants to be a real one. He wants to be a Green Beret no less. Those ideas and dreams lie far out in the future. Though they may never materialize, I am comforted that he has some starting point in his life. These are questions his mother and I have discussed with him since that night. The questions that he could not provide answers for, he told us he would find them when he gets there. It was so apparent to me that my son was becoming someone else. I could see his hunger for adventure and challenge was contained in my most favorite quote of all of literature, Shakespeare's play, the Taming of the Shrew. It introduces its hero, Petruchio, who, while riding into Padua, is greeted by a friend from his hometown, who asks, Oh, hail Petruchio, what winds blow thee to Padua? He answers, Such winds that scatter young men through the world to seek their fortune farther from home, where small experience grows. These are the words that help me understand my son's decision. I worry about his mother and how she's feeling about the prospect of her son leaving home at 16. She was unprepared and not happy about a separation so soon from Tommy. Our other son, Bobby, had left for college a year earlier and she thought she would have Tommy for two more years. The idea of spending 20 years as a mother and then watching them leave home is a painful experience for any mom. But his desire was so credible and so sincere that she could only say yes. She said she could not be so selfish as to stand in the way of her son seeking to make his life matter at 16. 
She always said that she put her children first. Her commitment to that devotion puts her into the selfless position that how her children feel is more important than how she feels. So she is preparing herself for what will be one of the most difficult sacrifices she can make for her children. What a fine example of love that is. For me, I grew up in and served in the military as did most of my family. And though I will miss them, I accept the idea that life is a journey through a strange land and each obstacle that's overcome becomes a transition to the next place in life. This challenge will expand the margins of Tommy's life and test his capabilities. When we finally informed Tommy that he'd been accepted and that he could go, I had a sense that I would see a lot of Roswell, New Mexico over the next couple years. I think my wife will insist upon it. And what a terrific story, and as always, beautifully told and written by Bob McClellan. Go to the McClellan Files at Our American Network to hear all of his work. And by the way, again, if you know a storyteller in your town, in your city, in your community, and you know who they are, there are a few people who can just really write and tell a story. Send their names to us here at OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And by the way, thanks to our proud sponsors of the show, MyPillow, and that's MyPillow.com to order their terrific pillows. And there's a 10-year warranty on these pillows. They're guaranteed not to go flat. They're 100% machine washable and dryable. And best of all, they're made right here in the United States in Minnesota. The founder, Mike Lindell, well, he's committed to having their operations in our country and in his hometown of Chaska, Minnesota. And by the way, my wife and I use them faithfully and fight over which is which. We often get confused and end up, well, just having arguments over who was whose. And now I'm actually, we got names on them, so that can't happen anymore. Hopefully, we'll see. That's MyPillow.com, MyPillow.com. And mention the word stories or pull the stories word down in the menu bar. This is Our American Stories, The McClellan Files. Our American Stories, and today we bring you a story our field correspondent Faith picked up while she was back home in California. And here is the first part of that piece. Kathleen Broder grew up in Los Angeles, California, and has lived in California her whole life. She is a 69-year-old retired grade school teacher and has had five children of her own. But Kathleen... She's not your ordinary retiree. She spends most of her time training for and participating in triathlons. A triathlon is a multiple stage competition most commonly involving swimming, cycling, and running. She races in about seven triathlons a year and runs about, you know, only one or two marathons as well. 
And at this point, Kathleen has participated in over 50 triathlons. Her obsession? Well, it began with running. Yeah, I was always very hyperactive, you know, it's Kathleen, slow down. Kathleen, don't touch that. Kathleen, I was very hyperactive and so forth. And so um, when I was a young adult, I got into, or before that, uh, before college, I got into running. My first marathon, I was, I think I was 28. And I really liked that. And then, you know, so I was running all the time. But then we got married, and I think I was 34 when I had my first baby. And when I got pregnant, you know, some women run through all their pregnancies and everything. I just dropped dead. I mean, I was so exhausted. Um, after a while, you know, when the kids were a little older, I, I got back into it. And then um, I started, um, I think, really getting back into marathons about 10 or 15 years ago. And I started really enjoying it again. And it was actually through running that she met her husband, Mike. We met, in, we were in the Santa Monica Track Club. We were just running buddies for a couple years, and then one day Mike said something about, oh, well, it's just about time to settle down, and said, yeah, me too. Okay, we got married the next month. I mean, we never really dated. We were just friends, and then we got married. <laughs> we had met, and then we really didn't spend much time together, and then we started going to, we would go to races, and we would drive together and so forth, but you know, it was never a dating relationship. It just turned, you know, the relationship changed really fast. And then we got married, we had kids, we had, so two years later we had our first and then we had another one and then we had another one and we just kept having them. So, okay, this is weird. I had listened to this tape thing, cassette tape thing of um, mining your diamonds in your own acre. <laughs> So it's really funny, you know, like stop looking all over the place, just look around your own area. And I think that kind of tweaked me a little bit. So, yeah, and we were always got along. We both liked classical music and we had a lot of the same friends. And, you know, we were just a gang of single people, adults that we just hung out together. And then all of a sudden, and we lived only a couple blocks from each other. So... You know, sometimes we'd run together, but mostly we'd run together in the track club. You know, and then all of a sudden, we just settled down and got married. So it was running that brought them together. Who needs dating websites when you have running clubs? Most people know that constant running can take quite the toll on your body. And most people Kathleen's age, well, their body starts to give out on them. Knee problems, hip problems, and so on and so forth. In order to avoid those issues, Kathleen started to take some precautionary steps, which is how her interest in triathlons got started. I started realizing that a lot of my friends, that, you know, their knees started going and they started complaining and I had fewer and fewer running friends. I thought, oh, that's me. I better cross train. I started swimming a little bit and biking. I already had a bike, but I was biking a little bit, not too much. And then my son and I were up in Carpinteria and we were camping and this was about eight or nine years ago and we saw this thing called I had never seen a triathlon and I couldn't believe it I I saw it and I said I'm gonna do that and I, I was talking to all the people well what comes first and why does it in that order and I was just kept I was fascinated and so um, 
I immediately signed up for swim lessons. I mean, I knew how to swim, but you know, real, real swimming. I bought a steel bike. I didn't know what kind of bike to buy, but I bought one online. So the next year, I did the Carpinteria Triathlon. I probably was the last one to finish because I had—I didn't even know how to shift the gears on the bike. The swim was so scary, and and then you know the run was fine. And I thought, oh yeah, I'm a tri- triathlete, and I thought that would be it. But something—I just kept—I just enjoyed it so much. So then I joined um, this swim group out at CLU, and they were starting a triathlon club, and so I started working out with them, and of course, and then I had to get a better bike, and it just took over. (laughs) And so I wasn't retired yet, but school became less and less of a priority. And so I started realizing, I don't really have time to go to work. I have too many workouts, and you know that's why I retired. Besides the fact that Mike kept telling me I was stupid for working because I could make just as much money on my retirement, so I thought, and he had already been retired for so long. So I thought, okay. And that was when her triathlon career took off. She began with some shorter races before diving headfirst into the longer ones. I started doing the little sprint triathlons. Those are the short ones. The problem with those is that those depend on mostly on speed and I'm not fast I just have a lot of endurance you know I was I did okay but those were kind of scary because you know things go flying and just have to always keep going so then a couple years after I started I started doing the Olympic ones and I liked that a lot more three years ago I started doing the half Ironman and I really really liked those because I was really competitive that's when I got really competitive A half Ironman triathlon is a 1.2-mile swim, a 56-mile bike ride, and a 13.1-mile run. And this year, Kathleen qualified for the world championship for the half Ironman. The last several years, this race has taken place far away, such as Austria and Australia. This year, she will be running in Chattanooga, Tennessee. There are a number of other races that Kathleen has ran as well such as some popular ones, like the Boston Marathon. Kathleen has ran the Boston Marathon three times. She will be running it again this year, beating her qualifying time by 24 minutes. How could she do that? What's this woman's training philosophy? A slow, steady pace with a lower heart rate allows an endurance athlete to train longer and more often without stress or injury. Obviously, Kathleen is not your typical triathlete. But what does a typical training week look like for her? I'm getting tired even thinking about it. Does this woman take any rest days? But I really listen to my body, and I can tell, like I did a, a century, uh, a 100-mile bike ride on Saturday. And it was very hilly in Solvang. And um, I could tell, so I was supposed to, in my brain... I was going to run on Sunday, and I didn't. And on Monday, I have two groups that I swim with, two different ones. One in the morning at 6 and one at um, 7 o'clock at night. And I was supposed to run in the middle of the day, and I didn't because I could tell I was worn down. So I did a bike ride today, but it wasn't, it was like 30 miles. It wasn't that big a deal, but it was just to, you know, kind of get, get back. The days that I take off, every once in a while, you know, life happens. Somebody gets sick, or I get sick, or 
that might be a day that I that I take off, but I don't work it into my schedule. I either there's something always happening. I usually do two things a day, but um, sometimes like um, if it's my long run day, you know, I won't. I probably won't do anything else except run. And when we come back, more from Kathleen Broder. 30-mile bike ride, not a big deal. A big deal for everyone in this studio, that's for sure, me included. Actually, a one-mile bike ride right now in my present condition would be a really big deal. When we come back, more with Faith and Kathleen, a 69-year-old triathlete who's making us all here in the studio look, well, just plain silly. This is Our American Stories, and we continue Faith Garcia's conversation with a 69-year-old triathlete named Kathleen Broder. And by the way, what's so fascinating about this lady is she had never heard of a triathlon. And then when she heard what it was, which is a mile-plus swimming, a long, long bike ride, and a very long run, she thought, hey, let me give that a shot. Let's continue with their conversation. So you work out like two or three times a day? Yeah, I'm not allowed. I don't let myself work out three times a day. You don't let yourself? No. Well, the only time I do that is on Thursdays because I swim at um, six in the morning, and then I meet my friend at uh, afterwards at seven thirty at the park, and we usually ride down to Zuma and back. But she has a coach that makes her run after her bike, and so sometimes in support, I will. I will um, run with her afterwards. And the hard part about that is that on Wednesdays, I swim at lunch, and then Wednesday nights, I have track. And then Thursday morning, I have swim, and then I bike with her, and then sometimes I run. So I am, Thursdays are a really hard day. Now that all adds up to about 18 to 20 hours a week. Basically a part-time job. Of course, with that kind of exercise, she needs to refuel herself. And during the races, you will catch her downing those awful goo packets. But her signature snack are those tiny little peanut butter crackers that she munches on during the biking part of her races. And of course, when she's not racing, she gets hungry too. Obviously, if you work out two or three times a day, I eat like, constantly. Are you always hungry? Um, I am and I really try. I really try to catch it before I get starving, or else I'll eat something, you know, like Carl's Jr. or something. I try to always, you know, to have stuff. I pretty much eat anything, and most of my friends are real, you know, vegan maniac people. You know, some people eat only raw foods, and some, you know, they have all kinds of these crazy things. But I don't do any of that because it's not like I'm training for the Olympics or something. I eat a lot, but for when I'm working. If I'm coming up on a race, a couple days before, I start eating a lot more simple carbohydrates because you want to, you don't want a lot of that, of the stuff in your system. You know, you want it to kind of get through. And so I'll eat more like, you know, white rice and I won't eat any fresh vegetables. I won't eat um, any heavy meats or anything like that. 
and the, especially the night before. And then in the morning I have, you know, I have the banana and oatmeal and I usually eat on the way to the race and, you know, there's just certain things that you do. For anyone who runs races or competes in triathlons, they know that bodily functions, well, they can make the race a little more uncomfortable than it already is. The last really stupid thing I did was, um, it was at the Oceanside 70.3 last year, and the wait to get into the water was so long, and I had a water bottle with me, because sometimes, you know, you get in that ocean water, you get very thirsty, and you can't drink anything, and you're in there for a long time. So I was, so I had a water bottle. I drank a whole water bottle while standing in line, and then I was swimming, but you can't, unless you stop and relax, you can't be. <laughs> and so I was in such pain because I didn't want to stop because I had all these people behind me. And, um, and it, I, just, I, I just died. So, you know, eventually I got out and it was okay. But, um, because you was, had to pee. Yeah, it was because you can't really, you can't swim at the same time. I mean, because you're not relaxed if you're swimming. And so, you know, just to tread water and people swim over your head. And so <laughs> that was really all. That was the worst thing. Kathleen, she works out with all different types of groups. Of course, there are very few people her own age in these groups. She is often much faster than people 30 years younger than her because her running endurance is so high. Typically, she said her swim is her worst event. Her biking is good, but then she really catches people on that run. And at 69 years old, going on 70, she puts young guys in their 20s to shame. It's funny because even my swim coach would say, he'll point to me and say, see, though, she's a real athlete. You know, he's always saying these things about me. It's so embarrassing. But, you know, I really don't think about it and I don't really compare myself. And, the, and I do know other people who are, you know, my age and much faster. But I do know there's not very many of them. You know, and there aren't, and the older I get, you know, like I'm going into this 70 to 74, that's the age category for triathlons that I'm in now. A lot of times, like this weekend, I'm doing a try and I'm the only person in my age category. So it's like kind of relaxing. It's like, all right, this is great. But, you know, I still want to do well. Yeah, I don't know. I really can't wrap my head around that because I think because I work out with so many people who are younger, I just enjoy, I enjoy that. I have a hard time being around people my own age. I like being around kids, people my kids age, you know, that, that kind of thing. And that's who I, that's who I'm with. I really enjoy. And I think, I think, I think they're, I'm like them, but when they're looking at me, they're looking at their grandmother. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's pretty funny, but I just enjoy that. And the older people that do, I do work out with, I mean, a lot of them are in their sixties, you know, there are some we're all kind of the same, you know, we all enjoy being with all ages and, and um, you know, we're pretty much, you know, we do the same kind of stuff. There are some who are very, very competitive and, you know, it's like killer and, you know, and then they take it a lot more seriously. But I think a lot of us, most of us have been very active our whole lives, you know, either marathoners or something, you know, you don't come into something like an endurance, um, you know, kind of a, an activity out of, out of the blue. You know, you've done something for several years. Or it's a personality type. I think it's a, per, a lot of it's personality. When I'm out there, it's like 
you know, sometimes I'm kind of amazed that I'm out there too and that these people, you know, like I'm passing this guy that's 24 years old, <laughs> especially on the bike. I mean, seriously, this last weekend when we did this century in solving, it was, it was hilly. It wasn't horrible. There were so many guys carry or just walking their bikes up these hills. And I mean, I was in my, you know, my easiest gear, but I'm like, mm, you know, good morning, good morning. I'm still going in there. I'm passing them up and all this. But what they do, guys, they power through at the beginning, not realizing you can't do that when you're running, you know, riding 100 miles. <laughs> so that's how you beat out a lot of the guys is by Well, they're stupid. Yeah, yeah, they're stupid. Yeah, and a lot of them are heavy. Some You can't always tell because some of these heavy people are, are very strong, especially in the swim, my gosh. Huge people. They're so fast in the water. But bike on a hill and you're heavy, you've got to work a lot harder. And then the run, too. So. But of course, not every experience has been great for Kathleen. She has fallen off her bike and gotten a concussion. She has broken her collarbone, gotten plantar fasciitis, and even tripped while running and broken her hand. As you can tell, Kathleen, though, she's a pretty intense person and it is hard for her to stop. She once told me a story about a race she finished where it was so cold she had hypothermia, but she was so out of her head that she just kept on going. Talk about endurance. Kathleen Broder at 69 years old is definitely an anomaly, but of course, she will not always be able to be this active. But for now, she's just incredibly grateful and enjoys what she's able to do. I would never just sit still. I would always be doing, you know, some kind of an activity. It doesn't have to be an athletic thing because I do. I love to play cards. I love to play board games, so I can do that. But I would just want to have nice people, active people, not, not real old people. <laughs> you know, it's funny because I, I consider myself so lucky to be able to do all this. And one of my friends the other day said um, that I work out, my training partner said, that she never goes on Facebook because it makes her feel bad because she sees all this stuff that other people are doing that she's not doing. And I started thinking about that and thinking, I just feel so fortunate because um, I think, you know, I worked a long time and, you know, I loved my job, but, you know, I enjoy so much what I'm doing now. And I have my bike group groups and I have my triathlon groups, and I have my swim groups, and I have my running groups, and there's a totally different people in all of them. There's some crossover, but not a lot. So I feel really fortunate because I have a lot of people to hang out with and stuff. Yeah, and you're fortunate because like to have your body in such good like, yeah. condition that it's not you know breaking down on you. Yeah, and you know what? If it does break down, I'm ready. I mean, you know, <laughs> I can do, I can do other things. I mean, you know, if I broke my leg. You know, I've had to come back from injuries and stuff, so I don't think it wouldn't be the end of the world. I would, I would just do something else. But you know, I enjoy that. That's why I'm, I feel fortunate now. So this is just something you like doing for it's now. Just, yeah. And what a great piece! Thanks so much for that, Faith and Kathleen Broder, a 69-year-old triathlete. I just wrote a few notes down. I love that she said, "I have a hard time being around people my own age." Well, I'd have a hard time around being around you. Kathleen, you'd exhaust me. She said she eats constantly. Well, we eat constantly here at Our American Stories, too. We just never even move our bodies. 
This is Our American Stories, the story of Kathleen Broder, a 69-year-old lady who decided, well, I'm going to do this thing called a triathlon. And by the way, a triathlon is a 1.2-mile swim, then a 56-mile bike ride, and then a 13-mile run. Give that a shot on your day off. This is Our American Stories. Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we love to tell stories about everything from sports to the arts to the sciences to history, and, well, we love comedy. We love funny people, and we've done a bunch of hours on so many great people in the business. And now for the hour, Joey Cortez brings us the story of a man who's worked more jobs than anyone, well, we've known, and whose current profession and accomplishments Well, it's something most of us could only dream of. Take it away, Joey. Men get nervous. They really, men get nervous when you get near the family jewels. In baseball, I don't know if you know this or not, in 1871 in baseball, men start wearing the cup to protect the family jewels. In 1971, it became mandatory in baseball to wear a helmet. (laughs) It took men 100 years to realize The brain is important also. (laughs) Women are always saying, you men couldn't stand the pain of childbirth. Men could get pregnant. They won't want disability from the moment of conception. Couldn't stand that pain. Women have no idea the pain a man experiences when he gets a good swift kick in the nuts. You know what I'm talking about, guys? Because I have heard women a year after childbirth say, it might be nice to have another baby. Have you ever heard a man say, might be nice to have another good swift kick in the nuts? A comedian with an extraordinary career, making 61 appearances on The Tonight Show, and a favorite guest and fill-in host for David Letterman. Never did a kid from the south side of Chicago ever imagine becoming friends and colleagues with the likes of David Letterman, Smokey Robinson, Sammy Davis Jr., Dean Martin, Tony Bennett, and Frank Sinatra. The very people he only fantasized about during his first few jobs as a kid. In all these taverns that I shined shoes in, there were eight in my neighborhood. Everyone I'd go into, Frank Sinatra was on every jukebox. You know, as was Dean Martin and, 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 of course, Sammy Davis Jr. And so I was listening to the Rat Pack as a little boy while I was shining shoes. That's how I first came, became introduced to their music. Years later, when I came out of the service, after I went in the Navy when I was 17 and came out when I was 21, I went back to tending bar. I worked construction and I tended bar. While I was tending bar in these, in these taverns, of course, 
Sinatra was on all the jukeboxes. Little did he know that he would become one of the closest people to Frank Sinatra near the end of his life. When I first started touring with Frank Sinatra, there was no question that he was the boss. And then as years went by, he became like a pal, a buddy. We hung out till dawn, you know, night after night after night. He never went to bed till the sun came up. You know, when I'd stay at his home, some nights he'd come and get me at three o'clock in the morning in the bungalow I was staying in on his compound and say, let's take a ride, Tommy. And we'd go riding all around the desert and he'd, you know, open up to me and we, we were buddies. And then later in life, he became like a father to me, more like a father figure. He started giving me advice and, um, and I knew that he knew the end was near. And so he was passing on sometimes things that he thought that I should know. And, uh, and so and a lot of the lessons I've learned in life came from, from being with him in the wee hours of the morning, uh, hearing his stories of his childhood and some of the things he might have changed if he could have. Comedian Tom Dreesen. From shining shoes to becoming one of Frank Sinatra's most intimate friends during the last few chapters of his life. Tom Dreesen's storied life and career began in a south suburb of Chicago, Harvey, Illinois, where he learned from Chicago's best comics, everyday, hardworking people in the comedy havens of its time, well before comedy clubs were even a thing. That's right, the local bar. One of the taverns I went to was where my mom was a bartender and my uncle was behind the bar, a man who was my mother's sister's husband. His name was Frank Polizzi, and he told jokes behind the bar. And I was always fascinated by the fact that this man, you know, I would watch him tell these jokes behind the bar, that with his vocabulary, his vernacular, and his inflection, and his timing, he could tell a story and cause this sound to come out of everybody's body, this laughter that would fill the air like electricity and unite everybody in the room. All of a sudden, everybody was one in unison in laughter. And I was fascinated by that process and used to like to tell his jokes, you know, many that should not be told on a Catholic school playground, you know. But it's what first got me interested, so I always loved telling jokes. But little Tommy Dreesen, he wasn't there for the comedy. He was there because he had to be there to help put food on the table for his family. As a little boy growing up poor, I had eight brothers and sisters. We lived in a shack. Five of us slept in one bed. So we had no bathtub and no shower and no hot water. It was a rat-infested, roach-infested shack. You know, and it wasn't during the Depression. I'm not that old, you know. Uh, so everybody else seemed to be doing quite well. We, we didn't have meals like other kids did. We didn't have a breakfast, a lunch, and a dinner. But as far back as I can remember, I was out selling uh, newspapers at the Harvey Tribune. And, and when I was, you know, in first grade, you know, I, w- I was helping my brother sell newspapers. My sister Darlene helped us too. And then by the time I was eight, I was shining shoes and selling newspapers. And so that's what it was like. And all of this was done to help feed my brothers and sisters. But Tom, he doesn't regret his childhood at all. My core values came from that town where people felt that you only deserved in life what you worked for. I learned work ethic, and, and, and I learned 
a responsibility. There's a sign on my desk right now that says, if it is to be, it's up to me. You know, I learned that as a child, that, that if, if I was going to get anything, I had to go out and get it. That's all I ever understood growing up, that you could get anything in your life if you worked hard for it. But that's all you deserved, is what you worked for. And when we come back, more of this remarkable story, a part of our American Dreamers series. If it is to be, it's up to me. It should be on every wall of every kid in this country. More of Tom Dreesen's story here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we continue Our American Dreamers story and our series with Tom Dreesen's story. Let's continue. Tom Dreesen had quite a rough childhood, and yet... I don't regret any of that. And why would he? It made him into the man he is today. Hardworking, family-oriented, compassionate, a characteristic exemplified through his attitude towards his father's alcoholism. You know, um, that you learn to hate the illness but love the man. My father, Walter Dreesen, wasn't a, a bad guy. He just was an alcoholic. He found the drug of his choice, and it was alcohol. And, and so, you know, money, money was scarce. Um, I remember as a little boy growing up, when I was in eighth grade, my older brother Glenn bought me a watch. It was a Crawford 17 jewel watch for my eighth grade graduation. And I never had a watch before. And I loved that watch, you know. You know and anyhow, um, about a year went by or so, and I couldn't find my watch. And I kept looking all over my watch. And I said to my mom and dad, who were in the kitchen, I said, I can't find my watch. And my mom put her head down, but she looked at my dad. And he, I looked at him, and he looked at me, and he put his head down, and I knew he pawned my watch. And I realized how bad he was feeling, but I didn't get angry. I, I start covering for him. I said, oh, I didn't wear that watch that much anyhow. It didn't matter. I didn't wear it that much anyhow because I didn't want him to feel bad. And I, I thought about that a lot in years to come. When I had children, if I ever would have pawned one of my children's watches for drugs or alcohol, I don't think I could have lived with myself. But again, <clears throat> when you're an alcoholic or when you're a drug addict, that's your lord and master. And remember that funny guy, the bartender, his uncle? Yeah, well, little Tommy would learn something about him that would turn his world upside down. When I was growing up, I, I had these eight brothers and sisters, and they, they mostly were blonde hair and blue-eyed, you know. And I didn't think I looked like them a lot. <clears throat> I looked a lot like my cousins, you know. Uh, and my mother was a bartender in a bar that... Uh, with her brother-in-law, and he owned the bar, and my mother was a bartender there for years, off and on. Now, as a little boy, wherever I went, people would say to me, hey, Polizzi, how you doing, Polizzi? i say, my name isn't Polizzi, my name is Dreesen. And they'd say, oh, I'll be down, you know, because I looked a lot like this guy, Frank Polizzi, you know, who was my uncle, my, my, 
mom's sister's husband. And I emulated him, you know, I just thought the world of him. But as I got older, when I got around 13 years old, I started realizing where babies came from. I didn't want to think that my mom and dad did this, let alone my mom and my uncle. You know, so I, I had this feeling that he was my biological father, but then I would crush that, just push that feeling down inside me, you know, and um, just didn't want to believe that that ever happened. But by the time I was 15, I really believed it because I really looked like him and I looked like my two cousins, his sons. And he was a real tough Sicilian. He took nothing from nobody, no time. You know, he stood up to the mafia in our town. He was a tough, tough Sicilian. He had a great sense of humor, but he was a man to be feared. Now, I was worried how I was going to approach him with this subject that I had, but I went for a walk with him. And he said, what does he want to talk about? And I told him, I said, I think I'm your son. And he was stunned. He said, why do you think that? I said, because I don't look like my brothers. I look like your sons. And people always mistake me for a Pulizzi. He said, well, it's true. He said, and your mother and I had an affair, and you're the product of it. He said, now you can go tell the world it would ruin your mother's marriage and it would ruin mine, but that's, that's your prerogative. And I said, I don't want to do that. I just needed to know. An alcoholic father, an alcoholic mother, an admired uncle later revealed a biological father who worked in a tavern. It's no wonder what little Tommy Dreesen dreamed to be when he grew up. When I was growing up, that's what I wanted to do one day was own a tavern because that's where my dad spent all of his money. I thought they were the most successful people in the world because I couldn't see outside my environment. I understand when a young kid in the ghetto said he wants to grow up to become a pimp or a drug pusher, he's never seen a more successful man in his life. You know, he, that, that person, that pimp or that drug pusher has got a new car and wads of $100 bills in his pocket. So that kid thinks that's what a successful man does. Tommy, though, did what many young men do to rise above the depths of their childhood torments. He joined the Navy. And you might be surprised to learn what Tom considers to be one of the greatest gifts he received during his service. I was a high school dropout when I went in the Navy. And uh, I ended up getting a high school diploma from the Navy, the GED, and, and uh, I later went to junior college nights. But what, what helped me a great deal was uh, aboard ship, I used to read like any other 17-year-old boy, you read all these sex novels and all that stuff because you're a young, um, full of testosterone boy. So I was reading all these novels and this, this older black man, Washington, said to me, if you're going to read something, why don't you read something that will improve your mind? So he bought me this book by Leon Uris, Exodus. And it was an interesting book. And then he questioned me after, what did you learn from it and everything. From that, I start reading positive mental attitude books. All these books that can improve your mind. Because I grew up in such a negative environment where the parents were alcoholic and everybody in that neighborhood mostly were, you know, you were a man when you could walk into a bar and buy a round of drinks for everybody in the bar. I had that tavern mentality in my head. And so... I, I couldn't think outside of my environment. So these books helped me believe that I could become more than just a bartender. And through this reading, Tom learned something that he wouldn't completely understand until he had his first child. I kept running across these two words, unconditional love. And I couldn't understand for the life of me how you could have unconditional love. You know, 
But it was two words that I that I just you know loved reading about unconditional love, and then when I was married, and my daughter Amy, they handed me my daughter Amy, and I looked at that child, and I, all of a sudden, I understood what unconditional love meant. I knew I was going to love this child all my life, and for till, till the day I died, I just knew that no matter what this child did, I would love this child, and to this day. This daughter, when she walks into the room, and she's a grown woman in her 40s, <laughs> when she walks in the room, she's got children of her own. But when she walks in the room, I light up just like I did the first time I saw her. My heart is filled with unconditional love. Tom, he finished his service, got married, and at times worked more than two to three jobs as a construction worker, a bartender, a photographer, a life insurance salesman. The list goes on. But that wasn't enough for Tom. As you've heard countless times on this program, all great men and women don't just simply settle down and relax. They do more great things. Tom joined the United States Junior Chamber, also known as the JCs. In those days, they were young men of action. They worked in the community attacking all the problems of the community, running all sorts of functions to raise money to fight the ills in, in that community. But in doing so, they taught you leadership training. They taught you how to speak in front of an audience. They taught you how to serve on a committee. Then they taught you how to be a chairman of that committee. And they taught you how to, as a chairman, how to delegate authority and how to accomplish things, get things done. So I was very active in, in the, the JCs in community affairs. And little did Tom know, that his work as a JC would spark his career in comedy. One of the problems affecting our community in those days were young kids getting involved in drugs. So I wrote a drug education program teaching grade school children the ills of drug abuse with humor. It's a concept I had. I wasn't in show business, I was selling life insurance. But I always had a propensity to make people laugh. And so I thought we'd get the children laughing and then plant the seeds of why we came there. So helping me with this project was a young black man named Tim Reed. And to show you how fate would have it, I already had a white guy, a guy named John DeBoer, that was gonna help me with this project. And that night that I was proposing running a drug education program to the chapter, this the young black man, Tim Reed, came up and said, he's a new member, just joined that night, said, I'd like to work with you on this project. And I said, thank you, but I already got a guy. The next morning, this friend of mine, John DeBoer, called me and said, I can't do that project, I got a new job. I said, oh gee, what was that black guy's name? Oh yeah, Tim Reed. And if you're thinking to yourself, I think I've heard that name before. Well, that's probably because you have. Most millennials know him as the father from the hit childhood TV series, Sister, Sister. And most older folk know him from his role as the Venus flytrap in the popular TV show, WKRP, in Cincinnati. And when we come back more on the life of Tom Dreesen and those books, boy, and the Navy, we gave him a picture of something better and more beautiful with his life, and he seized on it. And when we come back, you're going to see just how Tom Dreesen and this man, Tim Reed, well, how their unlikely partnership kicks off their careers in comedy. Tom Dreesen's story here on Our American Stories.
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we continue with our American Dreamers series, Tom Dreesen's Life. We left off with Fates bringing together Tom Dreesen and Tim Reed to start a drug education program in poor and middle-class communities of Chicago. Him and I worked on what we were going to do in the classrooms, and the first day that I went in the classroom with him, I realized, oh, what a blessing, because in the classroom were young black and white children. And when they saw us come into the classroom, a young black guy and a young white guy, we immediately got their attention, because the black and white students identified with us right away, and we became an, uh, an instant hit. We would joke off of one another and get the kids laughing, and the program became number one in 50 states and in 22 foreign countries. JCs use it in, through their publications as a model program on how to teach drug education at an elementary school level. And then one day, after about eight months of doing this, a little eighth grade girl leaving a classroom uh, at a school called St. John's in Harvey, Illinois, she was leaving the classroom, she stopped and she said to both of us, you guys are funny, you ought to become a comedy team. And the thought of a black-white comedy team intrigued us because no one had ever done that before. And so, they did. And because at the time, comedy clubs weren't really a thing, Tim and Tom gave it a go at a local jazz club and flopped. But they didn't let a little failure get in their way. So the next day we went, and I got a huge laugh of something I had written. And it, again, it was like an epiphany. I said, wow, this is what I want to do. It just came over me like, oh, I want to be a stand-up comedian. And I got up the next morning, and I went to church. It was a Saturday morning. There was no one there. I knelt down and I prayed. I said, God, if you let me make my living as a comedian, I'll never ask for anything more. I promise you, I'll do charities, I'll do everything. And, and the thought that I could make a living as a stand-up comedian, make a living making people laugh, it overwhelmed me. And so, at the height of the Vietnam War, racial tensions rising, societal unrest building, they said, why not? Let's do it. We were turning the nation as America's first black and white comedy team at a time when the Vietnam War was raging. I had just gotten out of the service. Students were protesting all over America. African Americans were rioting in every major city, in Compton, in Watson, in, in Chicago, in Philadelphia, in Detroit. The largest riot of all was in Harvey, Illinois, where I was born and raised, where, I, where we started out as a comedy team. In the middle of all this, we were going across the land trying to make people laugh. Now, we weren't going across the land preaching. We weren't preaching unity or get together. We just wanted people to laugh. But it turns out, a little laughter goes a long way. I don't know how many times we would go somewhere during this racial tension and that a young white kid or a young black kid, and they'd come up with the same story time and time again. They'd say, the white kid would say, you know, uh, after the show, they'd say, you know, I, I've got a black friend that I want to reach out to. And, 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 and if I do, the white guys are just going to wear me out wear me out if I have a black friend. And a black kid would come up and say, you know, I got a white friend and I want to be friends with him, but the brothers are gonna, uh, the brothers will wear me out if I, if I reach out to the white kid. But watching you and Tim today, I'm gonna do that. I'm gonna do that. That happened to Tim and I more than you'll ever know, told differently each time, but basically it was watching you and Tim up there having so much fun together, making people laugh, 
made me reach out to, to my buddy of another color. And, and uh, that's the most gratifying thing of it all. Not everyone, though, appreciated the biracial act. In those days, see, you know, racism is strange because if there was a black guy who hated white people, hated them with a passion, he wasn't mad at me. He was mad at Tim for being with me. And vice versa. Tom says that he was often called a Negro lover, and Tim and Uncle Tom, by people of their own race. But according to Tom, it wasn't just everyday people who rooted against them. It's a strange thing. You know, even in this supposedly, this liberal Hollywood, I don't think they wanted us to succeed. I just, when I look back, I think sometimes that we frightened the hell out of them because we said it can work. We didn't say that in our act, but they saw us performing, having fun together, and it was working. It was working and we we're making people laugh. And if that's the case, then where's the narrative that this is a horrible place to live? This country is a horrible place to live. If these two guys can get along, why can't anybody get along? And therein kills the narrative that we're a racist country, that it won't work, that if we work together. For some reason, that always stuck in my mind that I didn't realize there were people that really didn't want us to succeed. Something that one of Tom's close friends, who was also in show business, warned he and Tim from the very start. He said, you know they're going to try to separate you. He said, Tim, you know they're going to go up to you and say, you don't need that white boy. He said, Tom, they're going to come to you. You don't need that, brother. What hell are you doing with him? He said, it's called divide and conquer. Some people can't stand to see this kind of unity that you guys are, are projecting whether you like it or not. You know. So, you know, it's a shame because I thought that we were going to become America's greatest comedy team. That was my dream and my hope. When Tim decided to split the team up, it was worse than a broken marriage for me because all my hopes and dreams were in that six years. I wanted to be in show business and I thought Tim and Tom were going to become America's greatest comedy team. And when that didn't happen, it broke my heart. I was devastated. You know, my ex-wife wanted me to get out of show business once and for all, get a job in a factory and bring a check home every Friday night and bring some stability into our life. And I, I went to the corner bar where I used to attend bar and my, it was called a Sulky Inn. And my buddy Jimmy Lepore was sitting bar behind the bar and I'm sitting there and you know, people will buy you, I had two beers in front of me and people will buy you a, a, a drink and hey, give Tommy a drink down and they put a little shot glass in front of you. So I had like two of those in front of me plus two beers in front of me. But I'm just thinking, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? I, and I thought, you know, I was always real good at, 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 at alternatives saying, okay, I'm not painted into a corner here. What are my options? And I said, I can get another black guy and do the same act or I could go it alone and become a stand-up comedian, or I could get a job in a factory and give up this hope of ever being in show business. And those are my options. And I sat there contemplating, and I thought about it. I said, I'm going to be a stand-up comedian. I'm going to do it on my own. I'm going I'm to work on material, and I'm going to go out and do stand-up on my own. 
and I made up my mind that's what I wanted to do. And then I remembered a book I had read, Positive Mental Attitude by W. Clement Stone, and it said, if you know what it is you want to do in life, if you, know, if you want to do something with a passion, and it's a noble endeavor, search your life and see if there's anything in your life that can deter you from that noble endeavor and get it out of your life. And I thought, what could stop me if I wanted to be a stand-up comedian? I thought, my wife, no, she couldn't stop me if that's what I want to do, nothing. And I thought, alcohol. I love to drink, like my family did too. I love to drink. I said, you can't have hangovers and go out and, and do shows and write material and, and all. So I pushed the beers across the bar. And my buddy came up to me and he said, I said, I quit. He said, you're through for the night, huh, Tom? I said, no, I quit. He said, for the night. I said, I quit drinking. He went, yeah, right. And I never touched a drop after that until after I did the Tonight Shows and, and, and became successful. And then one night I went out and I, I ordered a beer and it just didn't taste like it used to. And so I, I, I don't drink anymore today. Myself, and get back in the race. That's life. That's life. And, and it's Tom Treason's life we're talking about. His rise from Chicago, now, tough times, to being on the stage with the biggest to the greatest talent the world knew and knows. This is Lee Habib. Tom Dreesen's story continues here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories. We continue with the final segment of Our American Dreamers story this week. And we've done every kind, folks, from, well, Bernie Marcus's story, the founder of Home Depot, straight through to Al Pacino's. And now we continue with Tom Dreesen's story. As Tom put the drink down, he packed up his bags and moved to Los Angeles, couch surfing and even living out of a car for a month while performing for free at local clubs and begging to get on what is known as the training ground for America's most famed comedians, the Comedy Store, a first-of-its-kind comedy club on Sunset Boulevard. Tom finally got a chance, became a regular act, and perfected his craft along the likes of Billy Crystal, David Letterman, and Robin Williams. Impressive, right? Well, maybe not. See, when in the comedy community in 1975, wherever you went in America, people say, what do you do for a living? You say, I'm a stand-up comedian. The next question out of their mouth was, oh yeah? You ever been on Johnny Carson? If you had been on Johnny Carson in the eyes of America, you just weren't a comedian. You might want to be one, you might going to be one, but you aren't one now. Because everybody in America believed that one appearance on The Tonight Show, your life changed, and it did. Freddie Prince did one appearance on The Tonight Show, the next day he got a sitcom. So it was a very powerful show. Even though there were other shows we could do stand-up on, none of them launched your career like The Tonight Show. 15 to 20 million people watched that show every night. There was no cable television in those days. So that was a show you tried to get on. So in the comedy community, that's all everybody talked about. Want to get to The Tonight Show. And as Tom tells it, he kept pestering Carson's talent scouts to come see him perform at the comedy store. And finally... When one of those scouts came by, 
Tom made his break. He said, good, you're on next week. And now, for a week, I couldn't hardly sleep at night. This is the biggest break in your career. As I said, 20 million people watch that show. Agents, managers, talent scouts, casting people, everybody watched that show. So for a week, you, I could hardly sleep. And I get there, and, and they put me in makeup, and they, and they take me to my dressing room. And then as, later in the show, they bring you down to the green room. And then they came in the green room and said, we ran out of time. You got to come back next week. So I wait another whole week and go through the same procedure, get there. And I get, they put me in makeup, and they take me up to my dressing room. Then they bring me down to the green room, and they bumped me again. They did this to me three times in a row. And now I haven't hardly eaten in a month and slept. You know, Finally, the fourth time I get there, and I go into makeup. And I'm in makeup, and a producer came in. He said, I got bad news for you. I said, what? He said, you're going on tonight. And now a lump gets in your throat about the size of a grapefruit, and you know you're going on. And so I, I, I'm in the green room, and they come and get me, and they take that long walk from the green room to get behind the curtain of the Tonight Show. And they, you know you walk through there and, and uh, you're standing in the back of the curtain and the coordinator says, are you okay? I say, I'm fine, I'm fine. He walks away <clears throat> and now you, you're trying to remember your material and you're panicking because the music is playing, Doc Severinsen's playing during commercial break. And all of a sudden the music stops and you know you're back live and your heart stops. And then you hear Johnny say, we're back now. And I'm glad you're in such a good mood tonight because my next guest is making his first appearance on The Tonight Show. Would you welcome Tom Dreesen? And they open up the curtain and you walk out into these bright lights like you're in an operating room and, and you can't see the audience, they're like shadows. And you hit your spot on the floor, there's a green tape on the floor. And you hit that spot and now the, the applause ends. Thank you very much, I'm a little bit upset. And now you do your first joke and you did my first joke. And I got it out and got a laugh, and then I, I did my second joke and I got a laugh, and then I got the third joke and it got a laugh. Then my fourth joke, I hear Johnny and Ed McMahon laughing behind me. Now I'm on a roll. Now I get seven or eight applause, and, and, and it just was a killer set. And I close with saying, you've been a wonderful audience, and show business is a tough life. This is my first appearance on The Tonight Show, so if you liked me, just if you liked me, and you're Protestant, say a prayer. If you're Catholic, light a candle. If you're Jewish, somebody in your family owns a nightclub, tell them about me, will you please? And, and the audience roared and applauded, Johnny roared, and, and I took my bow, and I walked through the curtain, and Craig Tennis came running around the corner, he said, go back, go back, you gotta go back. I said, go back, go back and talk to Johnny. He said, no, don't go talk to Johnny, don't go talk to him. just go back and take a bow. So I went back through the curtain, and, and the audience kept applauding, and, and Johnny gave me that little circle with his hand, like, good job, you know. And that launched his career. Represented by William Morris, signed by CBS, featured on the most popular shows on television. Tom Dreesen became a household name. I was doing all these shows, but there was one show I wanted to do, was called Sammy and Company. Sammy Davis Jr. had his own talk show. And I had seen Sammy perform years before that, and I just thought he was the most extraordinary entertainer I'd ever seen. So I wanted to do his show. And so they finally got me on that show, and I did all this material on Sammy's show, this six-minute routine about growing up in a black neighborhood and playing basketball on an all-black basketball team. And, and I did all these jokes that just broke Sammy up. And he said to me, I'm going to take you on the road with me. And he did. And he took me all over the country. And we were appearing in Chicago at the Mill Run Theater. And he said to me, have you ever worked Las Vegas? And I said, no. And he said, well, you opened there in January with me. And so 
Now in January, I'm January 1977, I'm driving down the, the, the main drag of Las Vegas, the Strip, and there on the marquees, Sammy Davis Jr. and Tom Dreesen, I was just overwhelmed. I you know, never dreamed that I'd ever be in, you know, I mean, I did dream that I'd be in Vegas, but I never dreamed to be with Sammy Davis Jr. And it was just amazing. So I, I, I performed with him for two weeks. And one of the amazing stories, or one of the stories I'll always remember, was that I brought in some of the guys from my own neighborhood that I grew up with to come to Las Vegas and be with me. And it was a buddy of mine, Sammy Eubank, and another buddy of mine, Mike Crowder, and my other friend, Tommy Johnson. Uh, and Tommy's no longer with us. He died a couple of years ago. But we were street buddies together. Him and I, you know, we, we, from the time I was a little boy, and then we set pins in bowling alleys together. He went in a paratroopers when I went in the Navy. And we remained friends. When I came out of the service, off and on, I would split up with my wife. We had lived together, you know. We were just a good street buddy. But anyhow, one of the days after the sh we got up in the morning, and we're going out, and, and uh, we're going to roam up and down the strip. And I looked around, and Tommy was gone. And I looked, and now he was looking at the marquee that said Sammy Davis Jr. and Tom Dreesen. And he was, this is a tough guy who was in the 101st Airborne. You know, just a tough street guy. And tears were rolling down his cheeks. And I looked at him and I said, Tommy, what the hell? What's wrong with you? He said, you don't get it, do you? I said, what? He said, you don't get it, Dries. They, he always called me Dries. He said, you don't get it, Dries. I said, what? He said, if your name is up on that marquee, our name is on that marquee. The whole neighborhood is on that marquee. And, and it choked me up, you know. And, and I said, yeah, yeah, well, let's go, let's go get something to eat. Let's take a walk, you know. But this, this was a big deal to him. Most of us never thought we were ever going to get out of that neighborhood. You know, it just, it's something that happens to you that you think you're going to live there, work there, and die there, you know. But it's, it's a moment I'll never forget. And not long after, Tom Dreesen would have the opportunity to open up for the king of show business. After I toured with Sammy Davis Jr. for about three years, I was touring with different artists around the country, including Smokey Robinson, my dear friend. We were working at Caesars in Lake Tahoe, and Frank Sinatra was appearing at Harrah's, two doors away from Caesars in Lake Tahoe, and I wanted to see his show. So one night after my show, I just bolted off the stage, didn't even change out of my stage clothes, and I was running into the showroom when the vice president of Harrah's Hotel was standing out in front of the showroom with a big heavyset guy with a cigar. And I didn't want to miss the opening because I, I had seen Frank once before, and to watch Frank Sinatra walk out to an audience, it was electrifying. Ladies and gentlemen, Frank Sinatra. He created more excitement walking to the microphone than most people created with their whole act. Just the audience would go wild when he walked out on the stage, and I didn't want to miss that entrance. And so I was running in the showroom when Holmes Henderson called me over. Tommy, come here. And I reluctantly went over, and he said, Tommy, this is Mickey Rudin. He introduced me to this big heavyset guy with the scar. He said, Mickey, this is Tom Dreesen. Well, I recognized the name. Mickey was Frank Sinatra's lawyer and managed his career and also a powerful guy in Hollywood. So he said, Holmes Hendrickson said, Mickey, I think Tom would make a great opening act for Frank Sinatra. And the lawyer got a pained expression on his face like he'd heard that a million times. And he winked at the vice president and I caught the wink. He said, hey, kid, if I gave you a week with Frank, would you want more than 50000 I said, Mr. Rudin, put it this way. If you gave me a week with Frank, would you want more than 50000 And he started laughing. He said, I like this kid. And then a week later, I got a call 
you know, saying, would you like to work with Frank Sinatra at the Golden Nugget in Atlantic City for one week? I said, oh yeah, sure. So they set the date and I went in, I figured I'll get my picture taken with him, hang it in every bar back in Harvey, Illinois and, and uh, say that I met Frank Sinatra. But the second night I was with him, he and his wife took me out to dinner and he said, uh, in the middle of the meal, I can remember like it was yesterday, he set his knife and his fork down. He said, I like your material and I like your style. I'd like you to do a few other dates with me if you're interested. And I didn't say, well, let me check my calendar. I said, yeah, sure. And, and it turned into, you know, 14 years of 45, 50 cities a year and a friendship that, that I'll, I'll never forget. From humble beginnings to a successful career in Hollywood, one of the few men deemed worthy enough to perform with America's most beloved stars, Tom Greeson, an American dreamer. And great job on that, Joey. And what a story. That's just one of my favorites. That's right up there with that Mario Andretti story. And go to OurAmericanNetwork.org to hear that one. And Dawn LaFrida. And you've never heard of her, but when you hear her story, not everybody has to be a rich, famous star to live the American dream. Starts with one Denny's at the age of 16. She's a waitress. She owns her first Denny's at 21. Owns 75 now, folks. Tom Dreesen's story here on Our American Stories. Thank you.